Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. chapter 4. While you're doing that, just so you know, I'm in Spencer this week. I'm covering for Pastor Jordan, who is on a well-deserved vacation, but I'll be back next week. Before we get into our study of Philippians 4, let me tell you how things are going to unfold for the next few weeks here at Crosswinds. Next week, we're going to finish the book of Philippians. After that, uh, there'll be two weeks where I'm going to actually be out of the pulpit. I'll be around the office helping things get ready for fall, but Pastor Chris Snyder will cover the first week I'm out of, out of the pulpit, and then Pastor Andy will cover the next week I'm out of the pulpit. After that, it'll bring us to August 30th, and I'll be back in the pulpit, and we're going to pick up uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Many of you will remember that we were teaching in the Gospel of Mark right when COVID hit, and we paused the Gospel of Mark and went through a series on COVID, and now we've done the book of Philippians. So it seems like it's time to get back to the gospel. And when we do, we'll pick up in Mark chapter 13, which, by the way, is one of the toughest chapters in the gospel of Mark and one of the toughest chapters in the entire Bible. It's one of those chapters that talks about the end of the world. And at the rate things are going in our world right now, and the election cycle, it seems like the end of the world probably will be just around the corner anyway. So it should be an exciting chapter, even though it's a a difficult chapter when we return to the gospel. But right now we're in the book of Philippians. So hopefully you have your your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first nine verses, which is going to be the text we're going to be studying this morning. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That ends the reading of God's Word. 
Now, in Philippians chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he's beginning to wrap up this letter. He's sort of summarizing things. And in this section that we just read, he's summarizing some of the major themes that he has talked about in this letter. Technically, there is a nothing new here. He's saying, if you didn't get it, here are the main things I want you to know. I'm going to put them in bullet point format for you. And he puts them under one big theme idea, one point that he hammers home, and it's this. I want you to stand firm in the Lord. We find that in, right here in the first verse. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. I often think Paul would have been a really good football coach. Because what he knows how to do is how to motivate people. He, he builds them up, and then he sends them out. And that's exactly what he does in this verse. He starts out by building them up. He says, guys, you're my, you're my brothers. You're my family. I, I love you. I long for you. I miss you dearly. You are my joy. The idea here is Paul looks at the Philippians like they're his own children. And if you're a parent, you know the joy in your heart when you see the success of your kids. When your kids do well, you are just bubbling with joy. And that's what Paul says about the Philippians. He's filled with joy because of how they are doing. And they're his crown. The idea is when he thinks of the day, he's going to stand in front of Jesus Christ. And he's going to present to Jesus Christ these people. The Philippians, here, you are the guys that I've invested my, my life into. This is my life work that I want to give to Jesus. And it will be my crown in glory. So Paul is extremely proud of these people. And he loves these people. So after he builds them up, though, he sends them out with this command. So guys, I love you. Please stand firm in the Lord. It doesn't matter that you be, began well in Christ. It doesn't matter that just that you are running right now well for Christ, but you need to continue to run well for Christ and finish well for Christ. It's like the Christian life is a little bit like the Indianapolis 500. It doesn't matter as a car that you start the race or you get 80% through the race. All that really matters is that you cross the finish line so you place in the race. And Paul is saying, as you are following Jesus, don't be like one of those cars that wreck on the track. Don't crash. Don't blow an engine. Don't lose a tire. Stand firm in Christ. Finish well for Christ. And what he does in verses 2 through 9 is he gives them five hurdles, or as it is, five challenges they need to overcome if they are going to endure in Christ and ultimately finish well in Christ. And by the way, these challenges are not just appropriate for the Philippians but they're especially appropriate for us. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, these five challenges will be things that you face in your life. And if you want to finish well for Christ, 
you're going to have to overcome all five of these hurdles. Let me tell you which ones he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the importance of unity with other Christians, the importance of our attitude so we're joyful and not grumpy, the importance of learning to be gracious towards others when we are wrong, the importance of learning how to handle our anxiety with prayer, and the importance of guarding our thought life. So hopefully you've taken your outlines out, which you can find on our website. And we're going to start on the top here. What does it take to follow Christ for the long haul? Because that's what it means to stand firm in Christ. Let's look at the first of the five challenges that Paul gives. The first one is this. I must work for unity and pursue humility if I'm going to follow Christ for the long haul. And he talks about this in verses 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Put yourself in the church of Philippi. Uh, a letter has arrived from Paul. It's, it's this letter, the letter to the Ephesians. The church is gathered. The, the room is filled. Someone has gone to the front, and they're reading Paul's words in this letter. And up to this point, Paul has talked about unity a number of times earlier in the book, but he's talked about it in more of a, a general way. He's talked about the importance of having unity because of Christ. But at this point... As he gets to the end, the gloves completely comes off. He addresses two specific women in the church that are fighting one another in the church. He addresses them by name. Talk about an awkward moment. It would be like a pastor preaching a sermon, talking about unity, and then stopping in the middle of the sermon and saying, by the way, you, Jim, and, and you, George, you guys need to get along and you need to uh, apply this. This is very spe specific and it was very uncomfortable for these ladies. But because of the nature of division in the church, it was an appropriate rebuke on Paul's part. A couple things I want to point out to you about the division of these ladies. First of all, their disagreement was vocal. Apparently, when this letter was read to the entire church, everybody knew about the disagreement between these two ladies. It wasn't hidden. In fact, Paul even knew about it when he was under house arrest in Rome. You know when people are gossiping about it and it makes it 2,000 miles away, it's a big disagreement in the church because everybody knows about it in the church. Second thing we know is this. Their disagreement was not theological in nature. And the reason I say that is because if it was theological, I guarantee you Paul would have corrected them on their theology. If one of these girls was going heretic and trying to pull people away from Jesus, I'm sure Paul would have said something. He just... He says things like in Galatians, when the Galatians were drifting away from Jesus, Paul just essentially comes right out and says, man, hell is hot, eternity is long, and you guys are heading there, you better repent and turn around. But we don't see that at all going on in this situation with these ladies. 
we do know that these ladies are very influential in the church. Uh, perhaps they're pillars in the church. I don't know if they ran the women's ministry together in the church. Maybe they worked together in BSF in the church. Maybe like Yodia was the lead worship singer, and Syntyche came into the church, and she was a better singer. So they made Syntyche the lead worship singer, and now Yodia had a, a demotion, and she had to sing backup, and she wasn't really happy about that. I don't know what happened, but it really doesn't matter what happened, does it? Because what matters is the fighting between these two ladies, not on a core theological issue, but really a secondary issue. It was tearing the church apart. When the church got together, it, it didn't look like a church meeting. It looked like a session of Congress where everybody was ripping one another to shreds. Here's some points I put in your outline. Their disagreements affected more than just them. That's so true. When Christians in the church fight with one another, it doesn't just affect them. Whenever there's a disagreement in the church, it's always a fight between more than two people in the church. It always goes that way. Because people will choose sides. And you end up with two camps. And here's the other thing you need to know. People choose sides based on friendships, not based on facts. So fighting in the church always leads to division in the church. It tears a church apart. That's why fighting should not be something that we're known for or something that we do. By the way, fighting in the church also leads to wasted sideways energy in the church. What do I mean by that? Is that instead of trying to focus on Jesus and how to encourage one another in Jesus and how to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and our community, what ends up happening is we end up focusing all of our energy on gossip and one another. Did, did you hear what she said? Did, did you hear what he did? And that's the, the focus in the church. And we're not making progress for Christ. Disagreements in the church also destroys the unity, harmony, and witness of the church. Oops, hold on. Think of Portland right now. Think of Chicago right now, or, or New York right now. It's a place, those are places that are filled with violence. And if you look at what's happened, most of the people in those cities have actually tried to leave those cities because they don't want to be around filled with chaos and, and fighting because they don't feel safe in those places. And when there's chaos and when there's fighting in a church, do you know what happens? People will leave the church because they don't feel safe around the church. They will run from the church. That's not the way we reach the world, by fighting and causing people to scatter. The church is supposed to be a place that is different. The church is supposed to be a little taste, relationally, of heaven on earth. Because we worship the God of peace. We are to be people of peace. That doesn't mean, folks, that we don't ever have issues. Of course we have issues. But we model what it means to 
work through those issues. We model what it means to love one another in spite of our issues, to be loyal to one another in spite of our, our differences. And so when people from the world, they come in to this place, and they're used to people fighting and bickering and hurting one another, they come in and they should taste unity, they should taste harmony, and they should see how disagreements are handled in a helpful, God-honoring way. I want to be honest and tell you that, unfortunately, the one thing that probably keeps me up at night after being a pastor for over 25 years is how people in the church who have prayed together, who have worshipped together, who have loved one another, have split apart, not because of core theological issues, but because of secondary issues of preference, or because someone ended up with their feelings hurt. Or things went in a way that they wouldn't have normally chosen. Not, not a, a, a core theological issue, like Jesus Christ was at stake, but just an issue of preference. And in the end, people were willing to break apart because of it. But I don't think that's honoring to Jesus. So let's look at this. How then do we work out our disagreements in the church? Let me give you a few points. Number one, unity comes from being humble like Jesus. We see in the text here, Paul says to these ladies, they need to agree in the Lord. This is a reference actually back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul talks about the incredible humility of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God, he left what was his rights as God. He never left his identity as God. He gave up his rights as God to take on a human body so he could suffer for us, so he could be, become sin for us. He could die an agonizing death for us. He humbled himself more than anyone else in the universe to restore our relationship with God. Because restoring that relationship with God is such an important thing. And if Jesus was willing to humble himself to restore our relationship with God, shouldn't we be willing to humble ourselves to restore our relationships with one another? If relationships are that important, especially with our brothers and sisters in, the Christ, in Christ, why won't we swallow our pride and make things work? For the glory of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, and to follow the pattern of the humility of Jesus. The next thing we, we learn is this. Unity comes from realizing the gospel is more important than the offense. The Jesus who unites us is much greater than any of the differences that divide us. Too many people split off of the church. They leave the church over preference issues, not gospel issues. And the reason they do that is because their preference issues have become bigger to them than the gospel itself. My friends, there is nothing greater than the gospel. And to break apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ is sometimes saying that the gospel isn't that important to me. Being with my brothers and sisters in Christ isn't that important to me. It's letting the gospel be too small. 
when the gospel is its right size, we get along because that's what joins us together. Third point. Unity comes when we let a church leader mediate conflict we cannot solve on our own. So notice Paul has challenged these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. Ladies, you need to work this out in the Lord. You need to pursue humility, and you need to pursue unity because of the gospel. But if you still cannot get this difficulty together, you need to go to the leadership of the church, and you need to submit to the leadership of the church to iron out this disagreement between you. And Paul talks about this leader. He calls this uh, person true companion. And you often wonder, why doesn't he actually use his name? Uh, technically, I believe he did use his name. The Greek word here is syzygous, and it means true companion. But syzygous can also be someone's name. Because sometimes they would use... Uh, a good character quality to describe the name or to be the name of someone, sort of like we do today. We have ladies who are named Grace, ladies who are named Faith. And that's their name, but their, na their name is based on a great character quality. And this guy's name is probably literally Sizegus, which means true companion, which means good friend. Now, the interesting part is. Uh, this guy is probably a pastor. He, he's probably an elder in the church. And his job is to mediate the conflicts in the church and to get people together in the church. Another point where unity comes from. Unity comes when we remember our hurt and offenses won't matter when we get to heaven. I think it's interesting that Paul says to these ladies, remember, both of your names are written in the book of life. If you can't get along now... Realize you're going to be forced to get along then. The issues that you think are so big now that is causing friction with your brother and sister in Christ, trust me, will not be big issues when you get to heaven and you realize how silly it was to divide over these petty, silly issues when really all that matters is Jesus and our relationship with him. So this is the first major point that Paul tells us. We have to make sure we pursue unity between our brothers and sisters in Christ if we're going to be able to handle, you know, follow Christ for the long haul. The second thing he says is this. My attitude matters. I must be a person filled with joy because of Jesus, not grumpiness because of my circumstances. In verse 4 he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is a command that he has given a number of times so far in this book. And he says our attitude should be filled with joy all the time. We should be grateful for what God has done for us. And that's hard in our world. Because right now we have um, rioting challenges. We have issues of a virus. We have financial challenges. If you think things are hard now, just wait till this winter. For most people, their, their joy goes up and down based on their circumstances. But as Christians, we're to be known for people whose joy does not go up and down based on our circumstances, but it stays positive in spite of our circumstances. Because no matter what happens to us, 
what is more important is what God has done for us. Think of it this way, folks. As Christians, we are loved by God. We are completely forgiven by God. We are the most blessed people in the universe because of what God has done for us through Jesus. In reality, the circumstances that are hard and depressing now are nothing compared to what God has done for us. How can we not be filled with joy in spite of the difficult times that we face? I want to just tell you a little bit in a practical way. How, how do I try and obey this? How do I get joy when life is tough? And yes, like you, I have plenty of those days when the alarm clock goes off and I do not want to get out of bed because I don't want to face the stress that's about ready to unfold. Here's what I usually do to handle my stress. Uh, oftentimes what I do is I just put in my earpods and I listen to some worship music for a while. And what's important is not the music side, it's the fact that it gets my thoughts fixed on Jesus Christ. So I'm singing to Christ. I'm grateful to Christ. I'm reminded that I'm saved by Christ. And if it's a really hard day, I don't just listen to worship music, but I actually go for a long run with worship music. Once again, fixing my thoughts on Jesus Christ. Now, when I say listen to worship music, which I think is a very good thing to do to help restore our joy, it's not the fact that it's music that restores my joy. It's the truth of God's Word in the music that restores our joy. Because we constantly need to be reminded of that. I put some of these down in your outlines. What are some of the truths we need to remind ourselves of? Where does my joy come when life is hard? Number one, we have to remember that I rejoice in God's sovereignty. No matter what happens to us, nothing is beyond God's control. Isn't that amazing news? It reminds me of Joseph. When Joseph was sold in the Old Testament into, into slavery, God took all the evil that was done against him and incorporated that into God's good plans for Joseph to bring him to the right place at the right time. Folks, we need to know this, that as Christians... When evil is done against us, it cannot thwart God's good plans for us. God will incorporate that and use that and get us to where he wants us to go. Another point, I rejoice that God saved me, adopted me as his child, and made me the most blessed being in the universe. I deserve none of it. How can we not be filled with joy when we are given the fact that we are the most blessed beings in the universe as a gift, completely forgiven. I rejoice because I know God is able to supply all my needs. And no matter what we are facing in life, God can supply all of our needs in life. I rejoice because I can talk to God in prayer at any time. I know He is listening. The one who created the entire universe and solar system listens to you and me when we pray. And he loves us, he cares for us, and he promises to respond to our prayers according to his wisdom, his timing, and his goodness. How can we not be filled with joy? Lastly, I rejoice because my death is gain, not loss. 
folks, the worst moment of our life is actually the, the best moment of our life. How can we not be filled with joy? Let me bring us to point three. I must focus on being gracious to others, even when I'm hurt or disappointed by others. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. The key word to understand here is this word reasonableness. It's the Greek word epikes. And it's a very important word, but it's a very hard word to translate. That's why if you look at a number of popular English translations, you see a different word is used every time. Some translations say, let your reasonableness be evident to all. Other translations say, let your gentleness be evident to all. Still others, let your graciousness be evident to all. What does the word epicase mean? Since there is no one English word that properly encapsulates that Greek word, the best thing I can do is to just describe this word to you. I'll give you some of the definitions and the resources that I've looked up. Epicase means being willing to receive less than you are due. It means being willing to be wronged, yet not make a big issue out of it. Sort of like a, a duck that just sort of shakes the water off its back. It means being wronged, yet still desiring good for others, not trying to get even with others. It means tolerating being mistreated, injustice, and yet not retaliating against people or seeking revenge against people. It means being mistreated, misjudged, misrepresented, yet accepting it and not wanting to turn around and destroy somebody because of it. It literally means seeking the good for the people who have hurt you as you forgive them and let the offenses go. Maybe you could think of it in the modern world. It's a, a rioter in, in Portland that smashes the storefront glass. And the other rioters go into the store and take all the stuff out of the store. Then they pour gasoline on the carpet and light the store on fire. And as the store is going up in flames and the rioters running out the, uh, the broken front windows, they, they cut themselves seriously on the glass. And they stop and they're, they're holding the wound there in the street. And the shop owner has a choice in that moment. He can either reach for their gun and take the life of the person who has ruined them, or they can reach for their first aid kit and help the life of the person who has ruined them. Epicase, what this means, we are to be people who go for the first aid kit, not the shotgun. And where does this come from? This character quality comes from Jesus himself. Look what Jesus said on the cross. And this is exactly this character quality being displayed. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lot to lots to divide his garments. These are the people that have tortured Jesus. These are the people who are killing Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to get even with them. He is forgiving them. 
He is wishing good for them. He is praying for them. That is what we are to do when people wrong us and, and hurt us. We are to shake that hurt off, and then we are to seek to do good to those people. We see it also here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. If we're going to be able to follow Christ for the long haul, we need this same attitude of Jesus, Paul says. We have to be willing to brush off the offenses and hurts that are done to us, not keep a record of the wrongs that are done to us. We have to go out of our way to do good to those people who have hurt us, just like Jesus did. And if, as a Christian this morning, you find yourself keeping a record of wrongs, struggling to forgive, the person you are following is more like Rambo than like Jesus. Rambo is the one who gets even. Jesus is the one who prayed for the very ones who were crucifying him and taking his life. Who will you be this week? Will you be filled with graciousness and compassion, seeking the good of those who have hurt you? Or will you be somebody who tries to get even? Number four, when I face anxiety, I must constantly turn to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says that we are not to be people that are known for our anxiety and worrying about the future. We are to be people who are constantly giving our worries to God and praying to Him about the future. We're not to be worried about who we're going to marry, where we're going to go to college, how we're going to pay for our medical bills, where is the money for our retirement going to come from. When, as soon as we feel worry, our reflex reaction is to be to pray. And that doesn't mean the problems will go away. But what it does mean is that we've given our worries to God what better place to take them, put them, and leave them than the God who loves you and the one who is in control of everything? Let me tell you how I deal with the anxiety in, in my life. I have a, a, a room in my house that has a, a, a lazy boy. And so I, I, I go there in the mornings when I'm concerned about things. And no, I do not recline in the lazy boy. Actually, what I do is I get on my knees and I put my face in the seat cushion of the lazy boy. And there I, I pray, and there I talk to God about things that are concerning me. Sometimes in the summer, like we have now, I don't go to the lazy boy, I actually go to the, the back deck, and I, I'm there when the sun rises, and I talk to God. And this is what I do. I talk to God about what's worrying me, and I, I, I don't just try and talk about it as fast as I can, I actually dialogue with God. And what I found is this. God often brings verses of Scripture to mind that apply to those situations. God oftentimes opens my eyes and He gives me insight about people and He gives me insight about situations that I wouldn't have until I slowed down to pray and listen to what the Holy Spirit says to my heart. But even if God doesn't bring Scripture to mind and He doesn't give me insight that only came when I prayed, 
one thing he always does is he takes away my anxiety and he takes away my worry. Because I know that once I've given the worry to him, things are going to be okay because of his. Look what the scripture continues to say in verse 7. When we pray to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peter talks about the same thing. He says, casting all your anxieties on him. That's what we're to do because God cares for you. Isaiah talks about the same thing. He says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This week, I know that you too are filled with anxiety. You are filled with worry, just like me. My challenge is to you, will you join me? Will you join me in getting up early in the morning? Finding your lazy boy, not to sit in it, but to put your knees on the ground and put your face in it. To cast all of your anxieties on God in prayer. Will you join me in going on the back deck of your house early in the morning and talking to God and giving those worries and anxieties to Him and seeing how He talks to you? What kind of scripture verses He brings to your mind? What kind of insights He gives you into situations? My friends, that is the only way we can make it for the long haul in Jesus Christ. We need to give all of our anxieties to God in prayer. The last point that Paul gives us is actually one of my favorites in this section. He says, I must guard my thought life if I am to follow Christ for the rest of my life. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, as you follow Christ, please guard your mind for Christ. The attacks that Satan makes on our lives, they all come at us through our mind. Through the internet or, or through just everything else that is going on. If Satan can feed garbage in our mind, we will think about garbage in our life. I mean, we can see this happening right now. Just look at the media. You know that the different medias are trying to shape different narratives, everything from what's going on with the protests in cities to what's going on with the election of our president. What they know is if they can get you thinking a certain way, you will act a certain way. You will vote a certain way because the direction of our mind will determine the direction of our lives. That's what's going on in the media right now. And Paul says, because the direction of our mind determines the direction of our lives, guard your thought life. Be very careful what you put into your mind. Isn't that just the way that Satan attacked Eve through her thought life? That Satan tried to get Eve thinking about the forbidden fruit? Because once she was thinking about the forbidden fruit, she would eat the forbidden fruit. It says that in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. 
But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. Because what we let into our thought life will become what we shape with our life. So Paul's challenge is this. My friends, stand firm for Christ. Don't just start well for Jesus, run well for Jesus, but make sure you finish well for Jesus. And how do we do that? There are five things he's talked about in this letter that he summarizes here at the end. We have to fight for unity and humility. We have to be people who seek to resolve conflicts with one another. Of course there's going to be conflicts. doesn't mean they have to be always big, theological, serious conflicts, but we're going to have conflicts. But we must work to solve them because conflicts destroy the unity of the church. We also have to be people of joy, not people who are grumpy with our circumstances, but people who are filled with joy in spite of our circumstances because what Jesus has done for us is so much better than any of the negative circumstances around us. And our lives have to reflect that. Number three, we have to be graciously forgiving. Like Jesus, we have to let the offenses that are done against us go. We, don't need to, we are not to seek to get even with people, but we are to seek the good of other people. Like I said, we're not to be people who go after the shotgun when somebody's hurt us. We're to be people to go after the first aid kit. We're to seek to be relieve our anxiety by prayer, and then we have to carefully guard our thought life because what the thoughts are in our mind will ultimately determine the direction of our life. Let us pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.